Prices are going up at Netflix, but the company might not actually want you to pay them. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the present bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me over the airwaves, Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. Gentlemen, great to have you both here. Hey, hey. Dylan. We're going to uh, do a little rundown on the business of classic cars. We have an update from one of the most important companies in the world. And of course, we have stocks on our radar. But we are kicking off today with updates on three big-time fool stocks. We're going to get the party started with Netflix. Jason, shares of the streamer up over 15% after it reported earnings and told the street, yeah, prices are going up again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you got to love it when, when a company can exercise pricing power. And I think that in Netflix's case, they're demonstrating that they can do that to a degree. You know, I, I think you know, when you look back at it, I think for some, the introduction of all of these new membership tiers was a, a thesis breaker in some cases, right? I mean, I do get that. The argument for a long time for Netflix was it's simple. You know, you only have so many choices. You're paying just this small flat fee. And that was great for that time. But, you know, markets involve competition enters the fray. And, and obviously, streaming is a very tough, uh, tough business, right? The bigger that you are, the easier it is to, to manage those content costs. And, and so I think that in regard to Netflix, you know, they're they're looking at this from from sort of two different perspectives, right? They can they can raise prices on their ad free offering, and and offer something to those folks that really don't want to deal with ads, right? And and that's good. The folks that really want that, they will pay it. Um, and, and as long as they continue to, to to be thoughtful about those price increases and they don't go too too much at once, I think they've still got plenty of room to go there. Now, the you know, the other side of that coin now is they have this ad-supported offering. And, and the ad-supported offering is something that is really starting to gain some traction, right? The ad tier is a nice way not only to bring in new subscribers, I think it's what, $6.99 a month. Um, it, it also offers an option for those looking to maybe whittle down their bill while still having access. So if you don't like those price increases, right? Well, now you have another option. Now you have another, another choice. You, you can quote-unquote downgrade to perhaps the ad-supported model. And I, and I say quote-unquote downgrade because, honestly, Netflix would be very happy to see you downgrade <laughs> to, the, to that ad-supported model because it is something that is very profitable for the company, right? They talked about it in the call. Uh, the, the connected TV market, the linear TV market, as they, as they sort of get into that connected TV, the advertising-supported video on demand – it's it's a hundred eighty billion dollar global opportunity now, and, and with Netflix, you're looking at a business that has fully seventy percent of their subscribers outside of the United States now. I mean that that has been a, a massive sea change in, in in the customers that this business serves. So it's a it's a different business than it used to be, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It really does seem like that they're they're making this all work. Jason, you mentioned the $7 a month for ad-supported. The premium tier of Netflix will now cost $23 a month, which is almost a double from 2013. And I'm trying to make sense of what the growth lever is for this business because it seems like they've got a couple different things going for them. You mentioned the ad-supported tier. Seems like we have some flexing of pricing power going on, but we haven't even mentioned the password crackdown, the great yeah. password crackdown of 2023. <laughs> yeah. And I think we're seeing that show up a little bit 
bit in the results too. There's no question. I mean, we saw, I think, 9, 9 million net new subscriber ads for the quarter, uh, significantly higher than, than really what was expected. And a lot of that was attributable to, to this paid sharing that they're rolling out. Um, and, and that paid sharing offering does make a lot of sense, right? And we're going to see that rolling out. I mean, it's not just Netflix is doing that, that's doing this. I mean, this is going to become basically just, just standard operating procedure for streamers as, as they go forward. And so they find a way to kind of, you know, expand that subscriber base, so to speak. And, and granted, it's going to be a little bit short-lived. They do feel like they're going to see some incremental boost to those paid to those paid sharing uh, subscriber ads here in the coming quarters. And that will eventually die down. But again, it gives them a chance to continue the relationship with the consumer without necessarily losing the consumer. And ultimately, what it does, and we saw this reflect in the financials, it's it's meaningfully boosting their margins, their cash flow numbers. Uh, they they raise the Sherry purchase authorization here to I think ten billion dollars now. I don't know that I really am so focused on watching Netflix repurchasing shares, given the content costs that come with running a business like this. But clearly, expanding the offerings, right, giving more tiers of membership. That's working out very well for them. It's, it's, it's having a boost to the subscriber numbers. It's, it's obviously playing out well in the financials, and I suspect we'll see that continue. All right, over to another big earnings mover. Shares of Tesla down 12% after the company reported Q3 results. Matt, I look at the market reaction here, and it seems to be a mix of what's in the rear view in the earnings report, but also what's ahead for this company. I think that's right, Dylan. It's, I mean, it's a tough environment right now to be in the business of making electric cars. I mean, it, it kind of always is a tough business to be in. I mean, and, and look, despite what many investors think and say, this is still Tesla's core business. I know there's AI, there's the robo-taxi business, autonomous driving, but building and selling electric vehicles is Tesla's core business right now. Um, so on the good side of things, production was up 18% in the quarter. Uh, delivery numbers were pretty solid, up 27%. I mean, there's still really healthy demand, uh, particularly for the Model 3 and Model Y vehicles. And it's good for Tesla for being able to continue growing at that kind of pace when you know other vehicle manufacturers aren't coming in or near that kind of growth. At the same time, though, you've got production expenses, which are higher. The cost of capital is higher. Uh, consumers are more strapped because, you know, probably more so than any time since the pandemic. I mean, it's just, you know, we've been through you know, kind of ups and downs in the economy. And now there's a lot more uncertainty, especially with interest rates higher. So you look at gross margins uh, for Tesla, they fell to 17.9%. That's down from 25.1% um, a year ago. And I think a lot of that has to do with sales price. I mean, the average Tesla sold uh, in the quarter for 44000 That's down about $10,000 from a year ago. So Tesla, like a lot of companies, is trying to find the right price, price mix, um, while at the same time trying to control costs. And that's hard. Um, I'd say the good news for Tesla, it's got $26 billion in cash now, um, plenty of room to keep experimenting, innovating, investing. And even though shares are down from the report, um, as we've talked about, Tesla's got this cult of investors that you know kind of doesn't really care about bad news, certainly in the short term. Um, and that keeps its equity price pretty high. They can always raise equity if they want uh, and get access to the capital markets. Uh, no, kind Matty, of I will, think so. you know you keyed in on something there too. That's really important. I mean, Tesla is still at the end of the day, it's a car company, right? But you know, one thing Musk knows how to do. He knows how to sell the sizzle. I think we can all agree there. Um, you read through the call, and, and we look at Tesla as a car company through today's lens. But in the call. You know, you see him saying things like, we're going to continue investing significantly in AI. That's the massive game changer. And then he goes on to say, you know, if you have a fully autonomous cars at scale and fully autonomous humanoid robots that are truly useful, 
then it's not clear what the limit is. And so that's where you see like, yeah, it's a car company today, but, but obviously that, that, that cult of investors that, that we, that we refer to, I mean, uh, they're, they're looking farther, farther down the line here, and they're looking at that language, fully autonomous cars at scale, autonomous human, humanoid robots that, that are truly useful. I mean, it is going to be fascinating to see. I mean, he, he obviously has a track record of over-promising and under-delivering, at least on a timeline. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see just what this company looks like in 10 years, and 20 years, because they have very bold aspirations, clearly. All right, from a company that is incredibly forward-looking and maybe always changing to one that is perhaps one of the most predictable businesses of all time, uh, we saw a change at Costco uh, being announced this week. CEO Craig Jelinek will be stepping down after the holidays, ending an 11-year run at the head of Costco. Jason, uh, in some ways a little bit of a surprise, but I think if we take a step back and look at some of the movements that this company has been making, maybe not so much of a shock. No, I, I guess I was a little surprised just to see that Jelinek was stepping down. I mean, Costco is not a company that I have undercovered, so I'm not I'm not following it on, on a daily basis. I, I guess it just felt like time time has just flown by. He was there for what eleven years, and now I guess it's time for him to go ahead and step down and and uh, and, and, and pass the torch, so to speak. But you know, this is this is one of those companies where when it comes to succession, I think you really are looking for someone to be able to step into that role to just keep that ball rolling, keep doing what has been done all of these years to make this such a successful business. I mean, Costco at the end of the day, it's not a very complicated business, right? You're, you're selling stuff to your members and you're trying, you're trying to give them the, the best price possible. And I think as, as long as they continue to do that, uh, chances are good they'll continue to be successful, particularly when, you, when, you're, when you're hiring from within. I, th- I think the cultural, the value there from a cultural perspective is, is probably really difficult to put a number on. To your point, Jason, uh, Jelinek's replacement, Ron Vatches, started as a forklift driver with the company over 40 years ago. We look at this internal promotion and someone who has been with the company for a long time, Matt, does this feel like succession planning done right? Absolutely. And it's 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 what you'd love to see. Uh, you know, both Vatchers and Jelinek were COO before they became CEO. They were both with the company. Jelinek, I believe, joined in 1984. He was a warehouse manager and kind of moved his way up. You mentioned Vatchers, who's the who was a forklift driver, moved his way up. I mean, this is this is how you love to see it done. But I like the points you guys made about What's unique about Costco's business, though? Well, maybe it's not so unique, but it, it's just such a steady, consistent business, almost unshakable business model, right? So it, I'm not saying a CEO coming in, you know, can't really change things or, or might or could, you know, mess things up. But I mean, it, this is kind of the opposite of that famous Warren Buffett quote, which is, you know, when a management with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for poor fundamental economics, it's the reputation of the business that remains intact. Well, in this case, with Costco, you have a business with very sound fundamental economics, and that's going to remain to remain intact, really, no matter who is at the helm. But I do love the way they they do the succession at Costco, and um, I can understand why there's been really no reaction to the stock price because this is a business that's just going to keep churning. All right, coming up after the break, we've got updates from major bellwether companies. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined over the airwaves by Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. With earnings season in full swing, we wanted to zoom in on results from a couple different companies that help paint a picture of the overall macro environment right now. Matt, let's start with Prologis. This is a lesser known name, but you like digging into this industrial REIT because you kind of see it as a bellwether for the economy. 
I do, Dylan. It's, I mean, it's the world's biggest industrial real estate investment trust, over $200 billion in assets. And those assets are primarily warehouse and logistics facilities. It's kind of the backbone of, of the modern e-commerce-driven economy that we're, you know, we're evolving toward. Um, for example, Amazon is Prologis' largest tenant. You've also got tenants like 3M, PepsiCo, UPS, Walmart, major kind of global companies that, that rely on Prologis' facilities to, to move goods, store goods, uh, and, and really you know, participate in commerce around the world. Um, and if you look at Prologis' results, they were, they were pretty good. You had solid same-store net operating income growth. Occupancy up to 97.5% at the end of the quarter. That's near a record. Uh, core funds from operations, kind of a cash flow metric for REITs, up 14.6% year over year. And Prologis raised guidance, uh, again, for the full year. So all, all good news there. But then when you look at management's comments, you know, either in the press release or the conference call, you get a bit of a different picture. You got you phrases like negative customer sentiment, uh, increased market vacancy, moderation of demand, lack of clarity. So I think Prologis' management is foreshadowing a little more economic weakness and uncertainty than perhaps I think it's being reflected in the overall market. But it's certainly being reflected in Prologis' stock, which I think looks really attractive right now. It's trading around a three-year low, 3.1% dividend yield, uh, just 20 times core FFO per share guidance. But that number is actually a lot lower today than it's going to be in the near future. They've got a ton of growth ahead as their leases roll to market over the next several years. So I just, there's a lot to like about Prologis. I would just say in the near term, though, it's telling us a pretty cautionary tale about the, the economy. Matt, you mentioned that the numbers themselves looked pretty good, but the commentaries where things started to get uh, a little bit more concerning. As you start to see more results come in over earnings season, especially from some companies that are a little bit more in the real estate game, is that where you're looking for some management commentary to kind of help you understand where things are going? I think so. And, and the reason I like to follow real estate, obviously, is, is space is used for a lot of different things. In the industrial space, like for Pelagis, you know, that's really where a lot of, a lot of economic commerce is taking place. And so um, I think as, as more companies report, we're going to get a, you know, a fuller picture of where things stand. All right. Over to one of the world's most important companies, Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, Jason, you dug into the results from the world's largest chip maker. What did you see? Yeah, tremendous position in the value chain for this company. I mean, uh, they go out of business and the world probably starts uh, stops turning, right? Um, so, so it's an important one. And, and from that perspective, it was a good quarter, I think, in that the company exceeded its targets and expectations. Um, I mean, they're they're dealing, I think, with some some difficult near term issues and market conditions and inventory levels. But I, you know, it's nothing they can't handle. Uh, when you when you look at the numbers uh, in U.S. dollars, third quarter revenue was seventeen point three billion dollars. It was down. 14.6% from a year ago, but actually up 10.2% sequentially. Uh, they're seeing a little bit of uh, improvement there in the gross margin number. Uh, operating expenses uh, accounted for 12.6% of revenue. That was up 50 basis points. But again, again, you know, you look at this business, I mean, their balance sheet, just a fortress, $48 billion in cash and short-term investments. And they continue to build out facilities uh, in order to be able to meet the demand in what they do. Uh, now, now again, back to sort of the, these difficult near-term issues and market conditions. I mean, they did talk about that in the call. They tightened their capital expenditures. Uh, previously, they, they were within a range of 32 to $36 billion. They, they brought that down to $32 billion, uh, given just general market conditions. Conditions right now, and they talked about uh, in regard to this overall macroeconomic uh, state of things. Right, they see slow demand recovery in China. They see, uh, you know, just just a weaker overall macroeconomic conditions. And right now, their customers are very cautious in inventory control. So 
in the near term, customers are going to kind of continue to get through that inventory, right, going through the fourth quarter. But they are seeing some early signs of demand stabilization in PC and smartphones, uh, which is is not a surprise that there was weakness there. We've been talking about that weakness for many quarters now with a lot of these chip makers. Uh, but but I think that what we're looking for is this company to be able to get through that that inventory, watch their customers get through that inventory towards the end of the year, and start 2024 at a little bit of a, a little bit of a healthier level. And it does look like they see revenue uh, growing, guiding for revenue growth of about 11% sequentially here uh, for this coming quarter. So some near term issues, yes, but but generally speaking, the big picture still remains uh, very optimistic. Jason, for folks that are more casual observers of the chip market, they may be a little surprised to hear uh, moderate demand or even slow demand, uh, yeah. just given what a boon AI has been uh, for some of the chip makers. Uh, do you feel like basically if we're talking about chips that are in AI applications, we are off to the races? And if we're talking about chips that are more in conventional consumer electronics, that's where we're seeing a lot of this more kind of stagnant demand? Yeah, certainly AI is is the the phrase du jour, right? I mean, it's no surprise to see uh, th- those replacement cycles in PCs and smartphones extend. Just the technology is getting better and better, and and so I suspect we'll continue to see that 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 is the case. All right, finally, over to one of the big money movers, the world's largest alternative asset manager, Blackstone, reported. And Matt, it seems like maybe money isn't quite as easy to come by as it used to be. It is not, Dylan, and uh, you know the investors have, have taken taken that hard, pretty hard on Blackstone's stock this week. I mean, yeah, Blackstone is in the business of raising capital, uh, investing capital, and earning management and performance fees on that invested capital. And raising capital has become a bit of a struggle. They, so they raised $25 billion uh, in the quarter, and that's still a really gargantuan number, but it's much lower than forecast and down from the second quarter when it was $30 billion. Um, they also raised just less than $1 billion for corporate buyouts uh, this quarter. That's a, that's a fraction of what Blackstone normally raises. Uh, so President Jonathan Gray, he uh, gave an interview to the Financial Times this week. Uh, you know, he mentioned that, look, institutional investors kind of holding back new commitments uh, to private equity until the new year. He pointed to higher rates as being kind of a, a key factor as well. I mean, 10-year treasury, it's, it's at a 16-year high. So the risk-free rate you know, where they are, it just makes uh, potential returns in the private, private equity space look less compelling. Um, and then if you look at the results for Blackstone, distributable earnings, which is kind of their, their big uh, big metric, that was down 12% year over year. If that continues, you're going to see Blackstone's dividend fall because um, that's closely tied to distributable earnings. So this is kind of a wait and see until 2024 story. I can understand why the stock's beating down right now. Institutional investors, retail investors, turns out not that different. When yields start looking attractive, uh, people start paying attention to debt and other places to put their money. Uh, Matt, appreciate the commentary there. Jason, appreciate your thoughts on earnings. We're going to see you guys a little bit later in the show. But up next, we've got a breakdown on a name you need to know if you're into muscle cars. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis. Here on the show, we like to find companies that operate in unique spaces and shine a light on them. For every interest, there's probably an industry. If you're into classic cars, short of having doubles or triples, your best way of protecting your collectible ride is probably having specialty insurance. Motley Fool Money's Deidre Woolard caught up with McKeel Haggerty, CEO of Haggerty Insurance, about his company's focus, insuring classic cars, as well as his favorite ride and the unique ways Haggerty tries to reach new customers. 
Let's talk a bit about Haggerty because you went public in 2021, but the history of the business is so much older. So tell us a little bit about where it was and where it is now. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, we are at the, we're in our 39th year as a business, celebrate our 40th anniversary next year. Um, and it, it started in, in an even smaller niche than insuring classic cars. We actually started as a family company in the basement of the house I grew up in, insuring wooden boats, if you can imagine, just classic boats. Um, but many of the ideas that were there are, are really the same, and that is insurance is a well-known product or service that people buy out there. But when you sell into a community of people, a community of like minds, the risk dynamics are pretty different. Uh, so that was certainly true in the early days with wooden boats, and, and it's a big part of what makes our classic car, collector car insurance business so different. Well, it's interesting because you've, so you went from boats and you've got the insurance business. It's, you know, we see this is a pretty, pretty niche business, but you're growing this larger brand, which I think is really fascinating and sort of catering to the classic car enthusiast going deep into events. So why are events so important? Tell us a little bit about the world of classic cars. Well, the car world is is large, um, and not just the new car buying world with OEMs trying to sell us new cars every year. But the the vintage car world has is it's almost a century old, believe it or not. In the very very early decades of the last century, people even then were interested in the earliest of cars, and they kept them running, and they would bring them out for special events, and they would show them, and it would it created this community of car lovers that it would. It would move forward each decade and each generation. The interest in different types of cars evolves, but it's always been this community piece. And so when you you fast forward all the way to today, you know, large population, and I'm just using U.S. numbers of you know few hundred million people. There are tens of millions of people that consider themselves in some fashion a a car enthusiast. And those tens of millions of people, not everybody owns a vehicle um, that's special to them, but many, many do. And you know, these are not just the big celebrity car owners. These are not just multi-multi-millionaires. Um, these are just kind of everyday folks that have a special car that they keep in the garage, and it, it has a special uh, place in their world. And events are part of it. Media is part of it. They they consume you know, car magazines and obviously a lot of online content today. They watch uh, television shows on you know streaming and, and cable television. All of those things are kind of a hallmark of a big community. And uh, that's the world we serve. And it's, it, again, insurance is not the maybe sexiest product out there uh, that people ever think about it. Nobody wants to buy car insurance. But if you love your car, like truly love it, um, then you think very carefully about decisions like how do you take care of it? How do you protect it? Where am I going to park it? when I'm out on a Sunday drive and, and stop for lunch somewhere. Those are the things that car people think about. And that's our world. That's that's the community we play into. So if you own a classic car, why do you need uh, special niche insurance versus just like insuring it through one of the big insurance companies? Well, many of these cars are insured um, through the big insurance companies. And um, we partnered with many of those companies to work with them. But that's the second part of the story. The big difference is this. We've all heard the the old saw that, you know, you go out to a car dealership, you buy your, you know, brand new car, you drive it off the dealer lot and a mile down the road, you get into an accident. Now, hopefully you're okay, but the car is destroyed. And one of the most frustrating things that people find out is that even that mile down the, the, from the showroom floor, that car is already depreciated in value. And the insurance company will, will pay you a depreciated amount for that total loss. 
That's true. So cars, you buy them, they depreciate in value, they go down to maybe not nothing, but next to nothing. And then many of them go away. They, you know, they just fade into the ether of old cars and junkyards, that kind of thing. But some of them hit bottom and then they start going back up again in value. And that's, that's the collecting feature. And it can take years, it can take even decades before a car is collected. But that's when we start seeing clubs form, buying those cars, or somebody wrote an article, wouldn't that be a cool old car uh, to have? And those cars start appreciating in value. And insurance, normal car insurance, doesn't take in, into account that appreciation of value. And that's what we do. We come in, we help people or our insurance partners value these cars. Um, you make sure that they're well protected for you know their appreciated value, and then you know we offer great coverage. But then it's the claim part that's that's most difficult because you know claims fixing an old car, not the total loss, but think a fender bender or something that happens out on the road. Those cars need special care. Um, they you have to go to special restoration shops, repair shops, and the big insurance companies. Again, many of them who are our partners, they're just not set up to deal with that. You know, they they put on new plastic parts out of a new you know for a brand new car. They're very standard ways of fixing things. They put in you know kind of third party windshields when a windshield is broken. But you know, for our car owners, you know the the windshield on a 1965 Mustang is a special windshield. And it needs to be handled very, very differently. And so that's where we step in. And yeah, it's a, you know, we're a growing business. We've been growing a lot uh, for, well, really since the beginning. But that's where we step in both for the consumer, but also the big insurance companies to kind of solve that problem for them. And it kind of makes everybody happy too, because we get to, we get to play with people's toys. <laughs> well, speaking of that, the reason I became interested in, in your company is I have an uncle who collects cars, collects classic cars. He's got around 70 of them in a warehouse in Florida. Uh, it's a whole lifestyle for him now. He goes to, to the car ac- to auctions a lot and, you know, he do- doesn't buy every time, doesn't sell every time, but it really is this lifestyle. So you talked a little bit about the events and I know they attract, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of people, but the auctions especially, why are auctions so important to Haggerty? Well, it's first of all, they're they're super fun. I've, I've been fun. attending auctions for for thirty years, and you know it's fun just watching any car sell at an auction. They're they're kind of sometimes rowdy environments, and there's this kind of gladiatorial feat quality to a car auction when it pulls in, and maybe it's loud, and you know the bidding starts, and the auctioneers start calling out numbers. And when a really really valuable car sells, you just, I mean, I, I still I get shivers thinking about you know sometimes millions of dollars being bid on on a car, and it rolls out, and it and it goes to somebody some new collection. Um, but, uh, there are many, many different types of auction companies, you know, that do high end, low end sports cars, different kinds of things. And we had been, um, sponsors of many of these auctions through the years and they're great. They're fun. They're awesome. But we also knew that they were a great way to attract new customers for us in the insurance and our membership business. And we also knew that maybe there was a better way to think about serving some of these customers. So we actually, after going public, acquired an auction company and have been kind of layering them into our other event strategy and saying, look, we, we're not trying to control the auction world. There are always going to be many choices, but we want to be a, a really high quality choice where service is really good. Cars are described really well, you know, both buyers and sellers 
you know, get all the information they need to make good choices. And then you let the excitement happen. So auctions are super fun and they're a big part of our world now alongside insurance. You've also got a membership model and that grew about 20% in the last quarter. It seems like an interesting uh, entry point for, for getting involved and getting engaged with Haggerty. So how does that work? Well, if you think, if you think like from the lens of insurance and think of some of the the big, well-known, larger insurance companies. You know, when I was growing up, AAA was, you know, figured very prominently in people's minds. They're an insurance company that also did roadside assistance. They had a membership component there. You think USAA, one of the just titans of our insurance space, great company, served originally um, U.S. military officers and their families. They've since expanded that to families of um, enlisted, um, enlisted soldiers. And which made for a much larger total addressable market. But there was always a membership component under that. And I always really looked at those businesses and said, wow, they sell insurance. Insurance is a good business, but they engage with people in between just sending them a bill for their policy. And they engage with them, you know, offering different things, different services, maybe engaging them in a community aspect. And that was really what we dreamed about doing. So we have a program called the Haggerty Drivers Club. And it is available to anybody. It's a $70 a year membership. You get a you get roadside assistance and a magazine and discounts and access to a number of our events. But the model really here is, you know, insurance is great, but insurance isn't the most fun thing to talk about. And having cars to talk about is is a lot of yeah. fun. And so if you were to look at our, our magazine, for example, I think we're the second highest circulation car magazine in the world of any kind, audited circulation. And there isn't a, there's no talk of insurance in there. I mean, this is about the love of the car. This is about events. This is about cool cars to drive or celebrities that own certain cars. You name it, we we covered in there. And that's that's the brand building part as well that you mentioned. That you know, I'd always admired you know some of the best companies, insurance or otherwise. They just really thoughtfully built their brands around engaging with people in things that they care about. And uh, you know, having these media components around with associated with membership um, has really been—it's been, it's been uh, very successful for us. Last question for you: uh, What would you like potential investors in your company to know about Haggerty? Well, what I'd say is that it may sound niche, but it's a much larger group uh, than many people think, and it's probably been the biggest surprise of investors when they've looked at the company. So when we talk about a total addressable market of of 40, 44 million vehicles now. This is not some media number that we're making up. This is actual data we have of registered vehicles. So it's large, large audience, very persistent economically, you know, across the board, all the way from buying cars, all the way down through insuring them. And, um, you know, very resilient in, in downturns. Like we may be, if we're calling this a downturn today, an inflationary environment. And so it's, it's just good, steady business. And it's actually fun. So it's fun to look at. It is fun. Uh, thank you for your time. But one quick last question. What's your favorite uh, collectible car or what, what car do you wish you could own maybe? Well, I'm, uh, you know, my, I kind of grew up in the Midwest. So, you know, we were definitely kind of, we were a Ford family. But for whatever reason, uh, my very first car that I dug out of a snowbank when I was 13 years old was a 1967 Porsche 911S. And before anybody thinks like, oh, you had a Porsche when he was 13, like I paid $500 for it. And uh, with my lawn mowing money, and I still have that car. And in fact, uh, it's a beautiful sunny day, and I drove it today. If you're into classic rides, Haggerty's site has blog posts for free for the aficionados. 
And if you're into stock ideas, we're offering our Motley Fool Money listeners a discount on our flagship service, Stock Advisor. With Stock Advisor, you get two stock recommendations per month, access to our analysts on our members-only live stream, Motley Fool Live, and Stock Advisor's full scorecard of stocks generating market-beating returns. To learn more, head to fool.com slash MFM discount. That's fool.com slash MFM discount. If you listen to the podcast version of our radio show, we'll drop a link in the show description. Coming up after the break, Matt Argersinger and Jason Moser return with a couple stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. We've been talking a lot this year about consumers cutting back, and there's one spot that just doesn't seem to be happening, boats. Matt, in prepping for this week's show, you shared what might be my favorite headline I have seen this year. It comes from Axios, quote, Americans sound miserable, but they are buying lots of boats. What do you, what do, what do you make of this? <laughs> yes, I mean, it's fascinating. I guess post-pandemic, there was you know kind of this surge in buying for boats. And when we say boats, we're not talking about yachts. These are fishing boats, you know, small sailboats, jet skis. And I mean, the numbers are, are, are massive. I mean, it, there are more people buying boats today than ever before in the country. And, it, and it, the demand just doesn't seem to go away. And there was something like 800,000 First-time boat buyers that entered the market in 2020 and 2021. I've never owned a boat. I, I know it's not the the cheapest and easiest thing to to have, and but it's 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 fun. I can understand why in a post-pandemic world, the boat is a thing to have. Jason, is the boat on the holiday shopping list for you and the Moser family? Listen here, man. Okay, <laughs> I grew up with boats, and and I I love them. But this headline. Americans sound miserable, but are buying lots of boats. Two things can be true here, right? You can be <laughs> buying boats and you can be miserable. And I think going back to that first time buyers number that Maddie uh, pulled out there, that probably has something to do with it. Because once you buy a boat and you realize everything that comes with it, then you start asking yourself, was, it, was this really worth it? Boats are super. They're fun. They are also a big responsibility and they, they are a big money suck. There's just no question about it. So I, I'll, I'll be interested to see how this ultimately plays out, particularly given the first time purchasers. But, you know, I, I was looking to see how this might translate into something investable, right? I mean, Brunswick Corporation, which yeah. this this plays right into their market. Boy, I tell you, the stock price isn't really reflecting this, right? The three-year chart is up maybe 15%. The one-year chart is up only 7%. Year to date, it's just flat. So I, I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll see this flow through or maybe those first time buyers have had a, a quick case of buyer's remorse. Matt, you've been talking quite a bit about how this high interest rate environment has been, in a way, an upper class and upper middle class stimulus. Do you feel like that might be playing into what we're seeing here? It could be. I mean, I, I, I believe in that a lot, by the way. I just think the high interest rates that people are getting on their savings, especially in those upper tiers, has been somewhat of an economic stimulus. I just think this has more to do with people being at home a lot more, you know, especially office workers. And it's just a great new hobby recreation. But I have to believe, Jason, that you know, some some healthy portion of this 800,000 first-time boat buyers are probably going to be handing in the keys this year <laughs> next. And maybe that's why Brunswick stock's not doing so well. There's that old adage, there's two great days when you buy a boat. The day you buy it, 
and the day you sell it. So we'll, we'll see uh, what day two looks like for some of those folks. Let's get over to stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Rick Engdahl, is going to hit you with a question. Jason, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, just keeping an eye on Chipotle Mexican Grill, ticker is CMG. They have earnings coming out next week on Thursday. Um, you know, there's a recent announcement they just came out with. They're going to be raising prices again. Talk about Netflix raising prices. But Chipotle is another company that has demonstrated they do have um, a modicum of pricing power. Now, we're not entirely clear on how much and where at this point, but this isn't the first time, right? I mean, they've raised prices several times here over the last several years. So you do start wondering if they aren't flying a little too close to the sun, right? Um, you can't raise those things forever, particularly in this environment. But I think furthermore, in just, in just looking at the earnings release, we just keep an eye on uh, traffic and transactions to get a better idea of, of how the stores uh, are going in, in the digital orders as well. Um, they continue to do great things with the app and the rewards program. They've grown that rewards program now to 35 million members. That's up from 29 million a year ago. Uh, they've got this new initiative called Free Chipotle, which, hey, listen, I'm all, all on board with Free Chipotle, but this was something they launched earlier this year where it's essentially, you know, just 10 free food drops that they throw to their rewards members throughout the year, queso, blanco, guac, whatever it may be. Uh, but I guess my real question is, could these price increases cause some near-term friction in the coming quarters? I guess time will tell. All right, Rick, a question about Chipotle. How important is it to Chipotle that everybody who goes there has a single order that they always get? Nobody ever changes up. Nobody ever thinks about it. It's got to be fast and uh, keep their menu limited. Well, I think that's something they've really exploited, certainly through their app, right? Once you get your favorite order there, they make it very easy to order and pick up. So it's something they've definitely benefited from. All right, Matt, what is on your radar this week? I'm going with the Home Depot, uh, ticker HD. Uh, you know, no introduction needed for this one. You've got you know, 2,000 stores in the U.S. and U.S. territories, 300-plus stores in Canada and Mexico, fourth largest U.S. retailer by sales, fifth largest online retailer. I'm thinking most investors don't know that. But look, this has been a tough year for Home Depot. They've had to deal with a, an inventory overhang. Comp sales have been down. Customer transactions are down. Big ticket items like lumber and appliances have, have really struggled. That's one side of the story. The other side is inventory is now under control. Sales trends have started to improve. Um, they're going to lap those record results from a year ago. So comps will start to look better. And they just put in a new $15 billion buyback program. Over the last 10 years, Home Depot has bought back almost 30% of its shares. That's uh, pretty impressive. So I, I look at the stock today, beaten down, under 20 times forward earnings, 3% dividend yield. I feel like sales and earnings will be bouncing back in the new year. Looks like a bargain to me. Rick, a question about Home Depot. Yeah, how much of their bottom line is attributable to the giant skeleton? <laughs> well, this month, it's it's huge, uh, Rick. It's huge. <laughs> Rick, which one is going on your watch list this week? Hey, it's October. I got to go with the giant skeleton. Got to. Oh, absolutely. Go get you a burrito. <laughs> Actually, I'll get the burrito on the way to the Home Depot. To get the there you go. <laughs> Maybe both are on my radar. Rick, appreciate you weighing in on our radar stocks. Jason, Matt, appreciate you bringing them. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Rick Engall. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.